Hello and welcome to People, Places, Power with me, Nick Cull. And me, Simon Anhold. In this podcast, we look at issues of international reputation and how they come together with foreign policy and a few other issues along the way. And today we're going to talk about digital diplomacy, uh, digital image, and how the world of new media is intersecting with this world of international reputation, public diplomacy, and so forth. Simon, you and I have been at this game a while, and we both worked in the world, you know, some people would call digital one point. And it strikes me that there were more similarities between the pre-internet age and the first age of the internet, the the 1.0, there were more similarities between those periods and what we have now, that the world of social media is significantly different, significantly more disrupted. Is that your is that your feeling too? Yes, it does feel like that. I mean, we, we could argue fruitlessly for hours about whether the curve is really a step upwards from 1.0 to 2.0 or whether it's not simply the passage of time increasing the importance and the disruptive effects of advancing technology over a gradual smooth curve. It could be either, but for sure you're right that we are now in several respects in a fundamentally different world from the world that we were in before. The internet is not just another technology. It's not, certainly the thing it's not is just another channel of communications. Mm -hmm. Because in the past, conventional wisdom was always that the channel doesn't change the importance of the content. And content is king, and it doesn't matter whether you're writing it in a newspaper or putting it in a telegram or sending it to somebody over a television channel. Still, in the end, the channels make no difference. The internet is fundamentally different because, as we know, it changes the source of the information and it changes the recipient of the information and changes the relationship between them completely. So, yeah, we're all getting used to this new world and beginning to beginning to recognize at least the challenges. No, and one thing that strikes me is that people haven't quite got their skepticism of Internet information developed yet. That it's like when a new communication form comes along, we develop a resistance to it, a kind of like resistance to a virus. And we, we haven't developed that yet. And you can see how the same kind of it, things happened when uh, pop- when the popular press was available at a mass level for the first time, when radio and uh, newsreels were, were putting forward information for the first time, uh, and even with the coming of television, that each of these brought a tremendous disruption to p- political processes, really yeah. serious political disruption. Yes. The level of, you know, we, I think we have to include those things uh, among the causes of the, of the two world wars and among the reasons for the escalation of the Cold War. So, you know, I don't think that the disruption coming from social media is a trivial thing. And I think that the the need to restabilize international relations is, is an essential task. And things could go very badly wrong with populations kind of stirred up around new media and the association we've seen between these new medias and authoritarianism seems to bear that out. Yes. The the notion of us taking a little while to develop a healthy scepticism for new forms of communication, I think is it's an interesting trajectory to follow. And I think at least part of that trajectory comes from the fact that with each new 
medium of communication, generally there comes a new voice or a new source of the information. And our natural tendency tends to be to trust that source of information until we learn not to. And so in the early days of television, we had aristocratic gentlemen on the BBC wearing evening dress and representing the the trustable classes, the voice of authority. And it took us a while before we began to discover that actually we shouldn't trust them just because of the way that they speak. When commercial television came along, it was the same thing. Suddenly brands were talking to us and we tended to believe everything we saw on the adverts. And it took us a couple of generations before we began to develop a certain immunity well, to that. You mean a Mars a day really doesn't help you work rest and play? But <laughs> it doesn't. Um, but you know the jury is still out on that one. And, and, <laughs> no, and I think, right. but but to follow that tra- trajectory into the into the age of social media, you can see why this one might take us a bit longer because this time the new spokesperson is our friend, our equal, our peer, the people who all the trust surveys tell us we trust most. We no longer trust authority in most parts of the world. The, 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 the people we trust are the people who are most like us. And it's going to be a very long time before we can learn to be sceptical about that. Absolutely. And it might be a, a better way of going about it might be to encourage people to be responsible in terms of what they share. So, uh, you know, I'm impressed by the work Nina Yankovitz has been doing, urging people to have, practice informational distancing, saying, you know, be careful what you share, think before you pass something pass something on so maybe the supply side is is where we we need to do a little work but as as, as we know it's good advice that Nina gives but as we know the voice of reason the measured adult voice is often not paid attention to when, everybody, <laughs> when everybody's no. having fun and the point about social media is that everybody's having fun and the last thing they're going to do is listen to the voice of reason no, that's true, but uh, absolutely. But how is it? How is this mapped onto international reputations? Because some countries have really tried to present themselves to the world as being digitally competent. Yeah, uh, I'm thinking. You know, the the really the first country that tried to do this, I I think, would be Estonia, with all their you know dig- basically offering digital citizenship. Yes. How do you think they've? How do you think they've done? Well, the the research suggests that this does add a component uh, to the standing of a country. There's nothing new about it. I think it's always been the case that a proportion of the world's population just automatically respects advanced nations. And the token, the symbol of an advanced nation in our age is being technologically advanced, as it has been for quite a few centuries. And that's something that people admire. They admire it because they recognize, first of all, that it stands for intelligence, it stands for progressive thinking, it stands for it stands for the kind of country where people would like to live because things move forward and because life is made easier and because government is benign. Remember that technology is very often associated with labor-saving devices and a higher standard of living and so on and so on and so on. So there's a sort of permanent truth that people admire countries that are perceived to be technologically advanced. And the way that plays out at the moment in our current age is that the countries that seem to be on the at the leading edge when it comes to digital technology get a bit of attention for it. It doesn't transform their images overnight, as we as we know from hearing me this endlessly, nothing does and nothing can, but it is a two gram weight on the right side of the scales. 
And there's evidence that Estonia, with all of its digital governance, mainly because it's clearly strategic and it's clearly consistent and it's a story we observe in Estonia consistently over time, that does have something of an effect. Nothing like the effect that the public diplomacy world imagines because yes. we're measuring <laughs> the opinions of um, ordinary people on the street. Uh, they still don't know where Estonia is. Um, but very often these perceptions start with the elites and then gradually trickle down to, to, to a broader public. But do you think there's a ladder here for, for other, other countries? You know, I've noticed over the recent years how Rwanda has been doing more digitally, Kenya has been doing more digitally. Do you, do you think they're on the right track? And can you see, do you see improvements in the perception of, of those countries? Nothing, nothing that you can measure yet on a on a global scale, but I do think that it's a plausible hypothesis, and actually for the same reason as Latvia, because what the demonstration of being technologically advanced achieves is it's a very effective foil to some components of those countries' negative reputations as they stand at the moment. So Latvia, for example, the people who've heard of it just about the only thing they know about it is that it used to be part of the Soviet Union. And therefore, it's associated with a whole bundle of negative associations in their mind, which also include outdated and possibly dangerous technology. So the perception that Estonia is leading the world in e-governance, society-friendly uses of very modern technology, is a very good antidote to the perhaps the most strongly negative part of its image. And the same applies to, 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 to Kenya uh, or any other African country. Why? A very similar reason, because the perception is that these are countries that are stuck in the distant past, that uh, it's, it's still all manual labor. It's still people uh, living in the countryside on a subsistence diet with poverty, disease, corruption, violence, and all the rest of it. And technology is a marvelous foil to that. No, I think that's right. I think that certainly with this, with Estonia, the the technology element has helped it part company with Latvia and Lithuania and say we're something different. It's sort of part of their argument that they're Nordic rather than Baltic. Though Latvia and Lithuania also have their own argument that they are distinct, and it's been really interesting to see how how each of those is presenting themselves as an exception in their own in their own way and seeking to back away from the Baltic experience or the Baltic and post-Soviet experience. Yeah, and in doing so, I suspect wasting a great deal of time and resources uh, for, what it, <laughs> for, for, for what it's worth. My own view is that uh, Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia, if they really were uh, wanting to get the Soviet past behind them and, and tear off the, the label of the, of, the, of the Baltic states, they ought to be doing this together. Mm-hmm. This idea that a, that a small country can somehow go it alone in the modern world and create itself from a very low base, let's be honest, a wonderful image all of its own that is admired around the world, I think that's fantasy. I don't think they could possibly afford it, and I think it would take much longer than we've probably got on planet Earth. If they were to do it together, they might really seriously make some headway and create a rising tide that would lift all three ships. The same, by the way, is even truer for West Asia. Uh, The Arab world wastes enormous quantities of time, money, energy, effort in trying to quote-unquote brand nation by nation, indeed in many cases city-state by city-state. We're not like the rest. We're not like the other Arabs. We're not like the Gulf states. We're not like the Middle East. And and that's fundamentally a destructive (laughs) message. 
No, and they, they'll pay somebody to tell them, come up with the same kind of uh, brand description. We're uh, an engaging mixture of ancient and modern, of forward-looking while we still look back, a proud people who, and you think, oh my goodness, this isn't really doing it, you know? One of these days we should, we should really have a conversation about place branding cliches. <laughs> Actually, many years ago, I, I got my son uh, to make me a generic country video with no country name on the end. It just said, insert your country name here. And the <laughs> scenes were all the same. So scene number one was aeroplanes landing at night at an airport. The mm -hmm. message is, look, we've got an airport. And then <laughs> scene two is the red lights of cars snaking away on a, um, a freeway into the distance at night and the white lights coming towards you. Look, we have cars and roads. And then you have a chef in a tall hat serving lobster. Look, we have food. And then you have a lot of decorative old women wearing woolen garb dancing on the top of a mountain. Look, we have culture. And then you have a bloke in coattails conducting a symphony orchestra. Look, we have classical culture. Insert country name here in the very center of name region. Name region. Every single video that's ever been made to promote a country looks like that. How can you tell me? Do you think then that the coming of social media has had an impact on the profession of country promotion? And the, the you know that we we still see public relations people setting up setting up shop as country promoters, and are they are they wasting their time even more than they always have been? Who, who knows? I mean, I don't know the answer to your question because I, I don't I don't really observe the the place branding industry very closely. But it would be it would surprise me greatly if people weren't trying to hitch a ride on on that particular brand wagon. I think it's made a genuine difference to practitioners, the governments, and and of course we'll come on to that. But perhaps the most interesting thing of all is that it has effectively made it free for countries to raise their profiles. Mm -hmm. Because previously, if you wanted the world to know about the extraordinary stuff you were doing, you would have to buy media to tell them, and it's very expensive to buy media. I'm not sure that it ever even really worked, but that's another question. Nowadays, you don't need to buy media. If you're an unusual and interesting place doing courageous and imaginative things that really make a difference to people's lives around the world, you do not need to spend money on media to get that message out. The social media is looking for stories like that, and they will pull that story out of you. You don't have to spend money to force that story into them. And so one of the things I find myself saying to governments a lot these days is, if you find that you're having to spend money on getting your message out, there's something wrong with what you're doing and what you're saying. It ought to be something that people want to hear. And if people want to hear it, you shouldn't have to spend money on it. But one of the problems with what people want is that they are drawn towards extremes. They're drawn towards emotions. And maybe the emotions we see most reflected in social media are humor yes anger and fear and i think we could all think of there's some great examples of countries using humor uh on, on social media to pr promote themselves i loved that meme after trump said uh, you know america first where uh, various comedians around um, especially Western Europe, said, yeah, but Croatia's second or, or Netherlands second and had great fun with that. And that was sort of a d delightful week and a half on the internet. But what about this problem of, of, of fear and going towards bad? Has this strengthened the bad news bias, do you think? 
It's, it's, it's created the potential to do both. And there's no question that social media is very bad news for countries with very bad images because people are now able to wallow that much more enthusiastically in all of the scary stuff, bad stuff, shocking stuff, outrageous stuff that they can dig up about uh, country X or country Y. But that doesn't mean that appealing to people's worst instincts is the only way to get social media buzzing. What people are looking for is what people have always looked for, which is sensation. And the sensations can be good. Yes, of course, it's a it's an old, old story in, in the communications industry that, you know, the plane landed safely at Johannesburg is not a news story, but the plane crashed before landing at Johannesburg is. Now, that doesn't mean that the public always prefers a bad story. What it means is that people prefer an interesting story. And therefore, the task of government is simply to do things that are more interesting than the bad stuff. And that doesn't mean it has to be negative. So, for, for example, you remember the rescue of the Chilean miners a few years ago? Absolutely, yes. An absolute 100% good news story. It dominated the global media for weeks on end. And that it was, was a very big fancy dress costume for Halloween that year. You had a little Chilean flag and a helmet. and so, Which is a kind of, uh, if you can make it to being a Halloween costume, you know you've succeeded. I'm obviously going to the wrong parties, but they, but, 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 but absolutely. And, and again, this is the thing I find myself saying over and over again. It may not look like it at first glance, and it may look like an uphill struggle, but it's always possible to do things that people will be interested in that aren't negative. The traditional media does tend to trade on the bad news stories because it's easier. And in any case, as, as, uh, as, we've, as we've said before, what the traditional media tends to do is not to lead public opinion, but to follow it. And the easiest to, to reflect people's perceptions and prejudices back on them, because that's what's reassuring. And that's how the media works most of the time. There's a tiny fraction of the media that does lead opinion, but it's a tiny fraction. We also we need to go to think, well, why do people share stories and what do people hope to achieve by uh, sharing stories with their network and they make themselves look interesting and better informed. I think that's right. They they want what everybody always wants, which is you know more admiration, more more respect from the whatever it is uh, to impress whichever gender they're interested in. Socially, same as ever. So you know we, but I think we can learn something from that, and certainly by de-incentivizing the spreading of tendentious material. So this was done during the war, where they would uh, have posters in the Second World War dis- discouraging gossip, the careless talk cost lives uh, uh, kind of stuff, made people who, who were sharing rumours seem, seem irresponsible and demonising that kind of, of, of uh, talk. And I suppose promoting negatives around sharing the most outrageous stuff online might put a lid on some of this behaviour. You'd have to do it differently today, though, wouldn't you, for the reason that we were talking about before, because the reason why that kind of propaganda material worked during the Second World War was because there was still a large reservoir of respect for the voice of authority. Right. Um, That's largely gone now. And so the demonizing would have to come from one's equals in some way. I, I remember some years ago you were talking about interpersonal memes to reinforce good citizen behavior. And there'd been a thing in Australia where if you saw somebody drive badly, you held up your fingers to imply they had small private parts. Mm-hmm. Do you remember, did, did, yes. that, did that, you thought it was an interesting idea at the time. Did you ever, did that work or, or did it even catch on? 
it was it was certainly much discussed. I don't know whether it worked or not. I don't know whether whether it was whether its effects were measured. But I, I think it's a really interesting direction. The idea that you find a way of encouraging people to sort of moderate each other in a fairly friendly and fairly humorous way. And encourage is the word, because if you tell them to do it, then you've turned them into state spies or stooges. And, mm-hmm. and that's wrong. And today, in most countries, they wouldn't even do it. But I, I think that's, it, it's an interesting mechanism and perhaps one of the few that remains to us. But uh, fundamentally, I think in the end, the only way that you can really change people's behavior is uh, at a much earlier age through education. Mm-hmm. That's when it's easy, but it's, it's risky because it's social engineering in the purest form of the sense of the word. So from the point of view of, of foreign ministries, do you think diplomacy's got harder? Is it harder to, to try and speak for order and moderate behavior in, 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 in today's world? Yeah, yeah. In, so, in some ways it's got easier, in some ways it's got harder. The, the, the ways, and we, we were talking about this earlier, that the, the ways in which it's got harder, perhaps the most significant way in which it's got harder, is the fact that you can no longer direct a message at one group of people very easily at all. And pretty much whatever medium you choose is going to be visible 360 degrees. And we've spoken for years about about the, the blurring of the line between domestic and international and how there really is no such thing anymore as domestic policy or foreign policy, they're one and the same. And I think social media has, has really hammered that home now. And because so much politics, like it or not, is conducted now on Twitter, anybody can see whatever you say. And previously, politicians and diplomats were able to exercise their craft judiciously by being able to send slightly different, sometimes starkly contradictory messages to their domestic and their international uh, audiences. Now you can't do that and you can't get away with it. So question, has it forced diplomats and politicians to be more honest? It's certainly made their lives harder. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm not, I think in a way, sometimes diplomacy needs a little dishonesty. It needs people to take the edge off their national behavior and to hold out a promise of compromise. I mean, during the Falklands War, I was a, as, a, as a nerdy teen, I listened to both the BBC News and then the World Service, which would come on uh, much later at night. And it was really striking how the BBC domestic news was all full of members of parliament saying, oh, we're going to teach those, those Argentinians a lesson. Whereas the late night news on the World Service was all about pro- process in the United Nations and looking for a diplomatic solution and had a completely had a completely different tone. And you just couldn't do that today. Although I wonder if perhaps we're being hasty in saying that you couldn't do that today, because e- even though the media has the, that simple distinction between domestic and local may have partly or largely vanished. Nonetheless, the ability to use technology to target messages very accurately indeed has massively increased. So, you know, today, if you were the BBC wondering how to communicate the Falklands, you could target your responsible UN-based international order version of things very, very precisely at the natural cosmopolitans to use one sort of psychometric profile, and you could ensure that the, the, the angry nationalists got the angry nationalist version. So in some ways, it, perhaps our ability to target messages has become even more sophisticated than ever before. You can still be found out, of course, and there's still that risk. I, I prefer the idea uh, that um, one makes policies 
that one isn't ashamed of in front of anybody, but that's perhaps a little bit um, idealistic. But what we're seeing is a lot of bad behavior online. Not, I'm not talking here by individuals, but I'm talking by governments. Yeah. And we're seeing state-sponsored trolls. We're seeing state-sponsored disinformation. We're seeing state hacking, state, all, you know, all, 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 kinds, of, all, all kinds of negatives, uh, um, uh, state uh, multiplication, uh, aggressive diplomats who are then, their voices made even louder by bots. And but, but, so one question would be whether having a reputation for bad behavior is a negative component of international image. Do the, we know which states are behaving badly online? Does that hurt their image or do they have some kind of get out of jail free card at the moment? Would it make sense to try and develop international standards of good behavior online? Yeah, well, to, to, to answer the second question, uh, yes, most certainly. And it feels rather late to be thinking about that. We should have done that. We should have started doing that some time ago and it needs to be done. With regard to the other question, does online bad behavior damage the image of a country? I think the answer to that is the usual answer to questions of that sort, which is uh, it, it depends on what the current state of play is before that, whether that behavior is congruent with what people already believe or, or, or whether they don't. Now, trolling and cybercrime and interfering with other states via social media is part of a, a set of behaviors, an attitude towards the international community, which is already associated with, for example, Russia, long before it became cyber. So this doesn't add anything new to the perceptions of Russia held by people who don't like or don't approve of Russia in the first place. It simply confirms it. As, as I often say, it's just paying the rent on that negative reputation. It's updating it. It's, it's, uh, it's reminding people why they don't like that country. On the other hand, if these kinds of activities were conducted by a country that isn't associated with anything like that, remotely like that beforehand, chances are it'll be ignored because it's an anomaly and people don't like anomalies. So that doesn't quite correspond to your get out of jail free card, but it does mean that if a country that was previously considered to be harmless or even benign suddenly emerged uh, as a vicious troll on the global internet, it would be a while before people changed their mind about that country because it would be anomalous with respect to what they believed before. But it might be a bad idea for a, a country that had hitherto been seen as being polite in its international dealings to accumulate bad behavior. So it might be that people, that it wouldn't change what people think about Russia, but it would hurt what people think about China. Yeah. I mean, the interesting thing about the, about the internet and by extension behavior on the internet is that it's one of those phenomena which is by definition global and by definition not local. In that respect, it's like the pandemic, it's like climate change, it's, it's like any of these fundamentally, intrinsically international phenomena. And therefore, what that basically means is that people are going to be interested in it. Because when we're talking about whether people admire another country or not, as we know, and this is the basis of the Good Country Index, they're really only interested in what that country does outside its own borders, how that country affects the world in which I live. They're much less interested in how that country treats its own citizens or how it behaves domestically. So any behavior that's connected with the internet is by default international. So if they block the internet or if they practice cybercrime or if the state tolerates or even condones cybercrime, by default, that's an international behavior. 
by default, that's the country reaching out and harming the international community, people who live in other countries. And that, in the world of national reputation, is the unforgivable crime. Right. So the analogy then would be to Nigeria, where they became associated with fraud online by individual citizens, and they had to clamp down on that to preserve their international image. So maybe now we should look for the same kind of dynamic with state behavior. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Nigeria, I don't know, because uh, first of all, I don't include Nigeria in the Nation Brands Index every year. It just it comes in as a sort of guest country every now and again, just to see how it's doing. So I can't really reliably tell you about the trends, whether its image has improved or, or worsened over the years. But for sure, uh, th- that sudden and universal association of petty online scams with Nigeria, named as the country that produces them, mm-hmm. didn't benefit Nigeria at all, because previously Nigeria was regarded, like most sub-Saharan African countries, by the rest of the world as unfortunate, but not malignant. So not a danger to us, but a danger to itself. Not a global risk, not something we uh, despise or, or fear, but just a place we feel sorry for. And that's thanks to Bob Geldof and Bono and the endless stories of poverty, corruption, disease, conflict, and all the rest of it. What this does, what the story of cybercrime did and online scams, was it took that bundle of unfortunateness and turned it into an international weapon, which is the worst imaginable thing that could happen to a country and to its image. Well, maybe the final thing to talk about today is the role of the tech companies, because if we're thinking about international image and relevance to a global audience, a company like Google or Facebook is looms larger in most people's lives than a country like Mozambique or, or uh, Uruguay or any number of other locations. So what are we to make of the image of, of the tech companies? Do we need to have ambassadors to Silicon Valley? I think Denmark has started to, to they sent an ambassador to Silicon Valley to try and connect to the tech companies. But maybe we do we need one for each tech company? How do we and what about their images? Do, are they seen as benign or, do, or is anybody tracking this? Yes, it, it, it's it's being tracked. Of course, we all of us human beings, we when we're considering places or things, There are several dials inside our minds about those things, and they can be turned up to different levels. So it's rare for us to totally approve of anyone or anything or totally disapprove of it. I mean, classically, when you ask people who hate America around the world whether they hate America, they'll give you a 10, yes, I hate America. But if you then say to them, would you like to go and live in America and start a business and study there, they give you another 10. So... Views of countries are not simple things. And in the same way, our views of those corporations are not simple things. We buy and use and appreciate their products. Otherwise, they wouldn't be so so successful. But if prompted to discuss whether they're good uh, social uh, citizens, we will repeat what we've heard, which is, no, they're not. And they're awful and they don't pay enough taxes and we need to clamp down on them. So we're very much in two minds, to use the sense literally, about the tech companies around the world. As to the question of whether they should be behaving more like countries, well, 
there's been a steady trade, hasn't there, in both directions of uh, approaches and techniques from the public sector to the private and the private sector to the public for, for decades, if not for centuries. And when intelligently applied, I think certain concepts from international relations can be rather useful for companies because they do have similar responsibilities, if not, as you say, greater responsibilities than, than nation states. They certainly have more power over public opinion than nation states. That's without a shadow of doubt. And the trust barometer and other such uh, surveys do indicate that people tend to trust corporations more than any other uh, when any other body. And you can see why, because you, you, you spend your own money on buying their product or service. You use it. You live with it every day. That's how trust is born. Other countries, you don't. You don't come across them more than once in a year. So it's, it's, it's very, very nebulous. But with companies, we feel very close to them and we learn to trust them because of the quality of their products, even perhaps despite the corporate behavior, which may not be coherent with their customer service practice. So there's, there's, um, it's, it's a complex area. But I would like to see some of these global corporations held up to the same standards as countries and vice versa. Do you think Google is seen as, as American? Is, is Facebook seen as American or are they, are they free floating at the moment? Well, to, to, to a significant degree. I mean, it's interesting how all of those large corporations in their branding have over the years subtly detached themselves from yes. a country of origin. I mean, calling a company Amazon in the first place uh, is, you might say they're pretending to be Brazilian. That would be the first <laughs> instinct of somebody who'd never heard of that company before. But for sure, they don't call themselves American Software Inc. And Apple used to say on its products, proudly manufactured and designed in California. I'm not sure that it even does that anymore. Now, that's because it's in the interest of any global company not to be too strongly associated with any particular country. It's, it's like being associated with, with, with movie stars or sports stars because you never know what they're going to do. And they can misbehave and they can trash your brand equity overnight. Look at Pepsi and Michael Jackson. You know, it's, uh, it, it can do your brand serious damage. And superstars, just like countries, are like children. You just never know what they're going to do next. There's a, there's a saying in the theatre, never... Uh, never appear on stage with uh, small children or animals um, <laughs> because you have no idea what they're going to do. And it's the same with countries because you have no idea what the next leader is going to be like. Imagine how American Express feel when Donald Trump is president. Well, I think that that's all we have time for today, but we've certainly not exhausted the subject and I, I hope it's one that we can come back to. This has been... People, Places, Power. Thanks so much for listening. I'm still Nick Cole. And I'm still Simon Anhold. <laughs>